A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said to the crowd, To what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A few weeks ago, I realized I would be preaching on the day after the 4th of July. When I realized what that meant, I was filled with dread. It is a painful and difficult time to be an American. And as a non-American, I wondered, where do I fit in in these ongoing conversations? Like many people in this congregation, white Americans, and really, all other non-Black and non-Latino and non-Indigenous people all over the country are re-examining their systems, their myths, their histories, and truly re-examining what it means to be an American. To quote Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of Pulitzer winning The Sympathizer, in an op-ed addressed to Asian Americans, many Americans are learning what it means to claim all of America to claim its hope and its hypocrisy, its profit and its pain, its liberty and its losses, its imperfect union and its ongoing segregation. It is a tremendous undertaking requiring humility, grace and courage, but also true repentance, a commitment to justice and reparations and a working vision for the future that includes all persons. I am wary of broaching what this future could be because I am a Canadian citizen with a Filipino mother and I spent the first 18 years of my life in Japan. I came to America when I was 18 to pursue higher education but stayed because I fell in love with and later married an American. For many reasons, I am content to remain a permanent resident alien in this country. Therefore, I am not personally invested, at least not in the same way that those who are American by birth or those who choose to become American as adults are in the future of what America is becoming 
I strongly feel that it is not my place to do the work of, Amer of imagining America's future. But I want to listen and I am honored to be a witness to this historic reckoning. So even though I am wary because I am not at all comfortable telling Americans what they should aspire to be, I nonetheless believe the scriptures have something to say to all of us as Christians. The scriptures have a lot to say to those of us who are in positions of power. They have words of rebuke, words of challenge, but also words of comfort, redemption, and hope. The scriptures also have a lot to say to those of us who are oppressed. And I want to acknowledge that even though we are a mostly white congregation, there are those of us who may be experiencing the traumas of racism and our scriptures has also has words for them. Words of solidarity, words of compassion, and promises of justice. So may we all be blessed with hearts to receive and have ears to hear. When Jesus preached about the kingdom of heaven, he was not talking about a reformed Rome, nor was Jesus really talking about a new Israel that was going to usher in the good old days of King David. Yes, Jesus is very critical of Roman occupation of Palestine, and the Gospel of Mark in particular is full of not-so-subtle criticisms of Rome and full of promises for the liberation of the Jewish people. However, Jesus is also critical of Jewish communities and Jewish leaders that have aligned themselves with Roman power and have abandoned the very heart of Jewish law. They have abandoned the covenant which requires the descendants of Israel to love God and to love their neighbor in or and they've abandoned the law to love God and love their neighbor in order to experience power, wealth, and prestige. In loving our neighbor, we not only love our community members, but it is heavily implied that we must love the stranger among us as well. According to one rabbi, Maklita Rabbi Yishmael, the word stranger or Hebrew word ger is a term used to refer to not only resident aliens, but harkens to the time when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus 3, 9, God commands the Israelites, you shall not wrong or oppress the ger, thinking that none can save him from your hands, for you know that you were gerim in the land of Egypt and I saw the oppression with which Egypt oppressed you. Ger is also used to refer to all those who were oppressed and without comforters in Ecclesiastes, and for those who are in the hands of those who are stronger than they in Psalm 35. It is used time and time again to refer to orphans and, window, and, and widows and for all those who are in bondage. Moreover, Meklita to Rabbi Ishmael further points out that God does not have mercy on the oppressed due to the merits, but solely on the account of their oppression. Unlike humans, God does, God does not ask if the poor and the oppressed have lived virtuous lives before deciding to show mercy on them. God sees their wretchedness and is angry on their behalf and is compelled to show mercy because that is how God's justice operates. 
In our gospel reading for today, verses 20 through 25 are missing. In Matthew 11, 20 through 25, Jesus rebukes three Jewish cities known for their extravagant wealth and are full of strangers who are not cared for properly according to Jewish law. In these cities, Jesus performs amazing miracles of healing as a way of fulfilling the covenant that these cities have failed to keep. And in doing so, Jesus not only fulfills the law, but also fulfills God's promise for the kingdom of heaven. By feeding the hungry and healing the sick, Jesus restores the broken community and expects those in power to maintain the work that he has done. Unfortunately, the people of these cities do not repent. They go back to their old ways and they do not follow God's commands to care for the stranger. So Jesus says, woe to you. It will be more tolerable in Hades for Sodom than it will be for you. And I'd like to make a quick side note. Many Christians for centuries have interpreted the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to be indicators of God's judgment against homosexuality. But a close reading of the text and understanding of God's care and love for oppressed peoples evident in the Torah makes clear the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah has everything to do with the failure to uphold Jewish law, to care for the stranger, to care for the most vulnerable, and it has nothing to do with sexuality. End of note. Sodom and Gomorrah are the biblical archetypal cities of lawlessness. They are known for violence and gross iniquity and for large communities of poor and communally vulnerable people. So these cities Jesus condemns are even worse than what one would normally imagine. And unless they repent, Jesus warns that their divine comeuppance will also divide the imagination. Many of us love Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I know even in my own life, this verse or these verses have given me great comfort in times of personal distress. However, we do this verse a disservice when we consistently take it out of context because we miss the challenge and rebuke in the verses preceding it. In the beginning of our gospel reading in Matthew 11, 16 through 19, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their needs of extra signs signaling that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He calls their questions childish and implies they are petulant in their stubborn refusal to listen to his message. And he says they are no different than those who did not listen to the prophets before them. Jesus even goes to call out their tendency to slander prophets as a way to diminish their message. And after condemning these three cities, Jesus offers a new insight into understanding Jewish law. Jesus, like the prophets before him and like God who spoke through them all, abhors injustice 
and made, has made clear time and time again that God's wisdom and what God's desire for the Jewish community is. The yoke Jesus talks about is none other than the Torah, the covenant between the Jewish people and God. God will rescue them from all forms of oppression and be their God, and the Jewish community will follow the laws of God gave them to promote human flourishing. This flourishing includes even the stranger among them. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, is not so much about our need for God, but God's longing for us and for God's longing for us to follow God's commands, to love our neighbor and to love the least among us. Jesus tells the Pharisees and those with ears to hear, to shed our love for worldly cares and possessions and to follow his way, to take upon his commands, because that is what will give our souls rest. God offers the yoke to both the powerful and the powerless, because what God wants is the flourishing of all. In our gospel reading, we hear words of great warning. Cities and entire communities, not just individuals, who do not repent of their failure to care for the stranger, will receive a divine comeuppance far worse than anyone could imagine. Jesus understands these failures to be a collective failing rather than in rebuking individuals in power. If condemnation is collective, so too is salvation. We hear of God's great love for the entire Jewish community and for God's desire to be in relationship with a people who loves God's commands. Jesus invokes a covenant that transcends any human one and imagines a kingdom in which no child of God experiences poverty, violence, hunger, or neglect, because the entire community of God's beloved has been voluntarily yoked to God. Being yoked to God is by no means easy. Our reading in Romans today illustrates just how difficult it is. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul knows what the laws of God require of him, but he is frustrated and despairs over his inability to live up to them. From there, Paul discusses the struggle between the impulse to do what he knows in his heart of hearts is right and his inclination to do what is wrong because of cultural conditioning and impulses he cannot seem to control. The law of God is the innate knowing of every human being what is good, of what is just, and the law of evil or the law of the flesh are the inevitable human trappings that we all find ourselves in. When I read Romans, I cannot help but reflect on the ongoing national conversation about racism. Americans all over the country right now 
are asking themselves, how did we get here? How could we let it get this way? How was I complicit? How was I complacent? How was I blind? Americans all over the country are horrified by the extent of violence against the black community. But at the same time, they know that they too had a part in letting the violence persist for far too long. Many are probably like Paul saying, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For many white Americans, the very thing I hate is the perpetuation of systems and ideas that oppress people of color, even though in their heart of hearts, they truly desire and want the flourishing of all people, especially the flourishing of black people. The good news is that we are not condemned to remain stuck doing the things we hate. And we are not destined to remain captive to these impulses forever. We can unlearn our cultural trappings and we can undo the mental, spiritual and cultural snares we inevitably find ourselves in. In the following chapter of Romans, in Romans 8, Paul says, to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For Paul, the spirit is Jewish law. It is the yoke of the covenant, and in it is implied a lifetime of commitment and recommitting to the central tenets of God's law. For Jewish communities, there are ritual communal recommitments, and these are formally practiced by observing Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. For us Christians, we do this corporately and liturgically when we reaffirm our baptismal vows whenever someone is baptized, confirmed, ordained, and on Easter Sunday. However, even though we formally renew our vows, maybe only a few times a year, Paul urges us to think of renewing our vows and commitment to renounce evil as an ongoing practice. Salvation is not a once-in-a-lifetime event, but a lifetime of reorienting towards God and a lifetime of recommitting to repentance. We will forever be engaged in the battle to do what is right and to renounce evil. But after years of practice with the support of a like-minded community and with God's help, individual and communal salvation is indeed possible. So too it is with individual and systemic racism. If we are to free ourselves from the trappings of it, we must commit ourselves to the daily work of dismantling our cultural, spiritual, and mental trappings. We are lucky in that we do not have to figure out how to do this work from scratch. As many people and communities have gone before us, to lay down the groundwork. Moreover, the Episcopal Church in 2016 offered a response to the Charleston shootings of nine black churchgoers at Emmanuel AMC by sharing the Becoming Beloved community, which is an outline of a journey grounded in our baptismal covenant 
so that all people can follow Jesus and take on his yoke to love God, love our neighbor, and to especially love the stranger. The Episcopal Church invites us on a journey to tell the truth about the church and race. We will persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. To proclaim the dream of becoming the beloved community, we will proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ. To practice the way of love, we will seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and to repairing the breach in society and institutions. We will strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. In committing to this journey of repentance, we follow the law of the spirit and we will find life and we will find peace. However, if we persist in our refusal to repent, we not only become captive to the laws of sin and death, our scriptures remind us of the ultimate consequences of our collective failure to address iniquity a divine punishment more horrible than what we would normally imagine. But for those who choose to tell the truth, proclaim the dream of beloved community, practice the way of love and repair the breaches in our church, in this nation and our world, our Lord says to them, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And may we all say to this invitation, I will with God's help. Amen.